This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Attorney, Fox News legal analyst, and two-time New York Times bestselling author. This is The Brief with Greg Jarrett. We are proud of our son for killing so many Jews. These were the incomprehensible words spoken by the parents of a Hamas suicide bomber as I sat in their cramped quarters in Gaza in late 2001. He is a martyr and a hero, they added. And then the father pointed to his youngest son perched on a chair nearby, and he boasted that he too would one day join his sibling in glorious death by blowing himself up to murder Israelis. I stared at the boy, who was no more than 10 years old, and with a smile, he nodded in agreement and held up a poster featuring his dead brother's image. Well, that placard was one of the many faces of suicide bombers that I had seen plastered on buildings and walls throughout Gaza. They were everywhere, a visual deification of the Hamas demand that Palestinians willingly sacrifice their own lives to slaughter Jews and destroy Israel. The boy, it seemed, yearned for his own poster. I asked the parents if Hamas or any other group had paid them a reward for what their oldest son had done. They hesitated. There was a whispered discussion before they finally shook their heads. Skeptical, I asked my interpreter to pose the question again. More whispers. Then the same dubious response. It was well established that terrorists incentivize suicide bombers by compensating their families financially. The more Jews that are murdered, the higher the payments received. It was all part of the Hamas calculus to nurture and incite terrorism. They lured so-called martyrs. Palestinians were programmed, jihad taught in schools and mosques. It could be read in newspapers and heard on radio. Gazans were inculcated with hate and then radicalized. An entire generation grew up brainwashed that it is their sacred duty to murder and maim as many Israelis as possible. I witnessed firsthand the manifestation of this twisted mentality when I covered the Second Intifada as a correspondent 22 years ago. Back then, the terrorist weapon of choice was suicide bombings. There were 138 of them that claimed more than a 1,000 Israeli lives. One of the most devastating attacks occurred at Ben Yehuda Plaza in Jerusalem. I arrived there shortly after twin bombers sent by Hamas detonated their explosives amid the many young people who were enjoying a Sabbath night at the popular outdoor cafes that dotted the streets. 
Mangled and dismembered bodies were everywhere. Blood flowed freely over the bricks beneath my boots. It was a scene of unimaginable carnage. Eleven individuals ranging in age from 14 to 21 were murdered. 188 others were wounded. It was an appalling sight. Hours later, I visited a nearby hospital to speak with traumatized survivors, some of whom were now missing limbs. They all asked the same question, why? The next day, I traveled to Haifa, where Hamas had struck yet again. A suicide bomber boarded a bus at a busy intersection and triggered a bomb hidden underneath his heavy clothing. Fifteen civilians were blown to pieces and incinerated. Forty others were injured, some of them horribly. The burned-out wreckage of tangled metal was a haunting testament to the terrorists' inhumanity. Heartbroken family members had gathered there, and they too ached to know why. In my time in Israel, there were so many gruesome attacks and the inevitable wails of grief that they became very difficult to track in real time. I headed to Gaza in search of answers to that persistent question. The parents of the suicide bomber offered a window into the perverse mindset of Hamas followers. Their knowledge of the historic land conflict was superficial, if non-existent. They simply mouthed the terrorist covenant, memorialized in the Hamas charter that vows the complete annihilation of Israel and the murder of all Jews. Beyond that, they seemed to know almost nothing. I found this to be a typical response in Gaza, a population indoctrinated by an ugly terrorist ideology reliant on a culture of disinformation, anti-Semitism, and bloodshed. Sometimes, asking questions becomes folly, because it's impossible to make sense of the inherently senseless. But I came to realize that evil doesn't happen suddenly. It incubates over time, until a consuming hatred suffocates all reason and metastasizes into a monstrous rage. The recent attack by Hamas terrorists who butchered some 1,300 innocent civilians in the most despicable and depraved ways represents the modern face of evil. Hamas deliberately planned this savagery as their enmity toward Israel grew exponentially over time. They harbor no remorse, but rejoice in the cruelty and suffering they inflicted. Children were beheaded, people burned alive, the elderly executed, teenagers at a music festival gunned down, women were raped and tortured, mutilated bodies covered the landscape, and then Hamas took hostages, including Americans. As cowards invariably do, the terrorists retreated into Gaza to take refuge among the Palestinian populace who they commandeered as human shields. This is by design. As Israel's capable military 
defends its homeland by taking the fight to the enemy where it hides, Hamas will exploit video images and photographs to falsely blame the victims as aggressors. They're already doing it. Terrorists, you see, are adept at propaganda. They count on the reaction of a liberal media and weak nations to do their bidding. But Israel has nothing to apologize for. The uncomfortable truth is that Hamas will never stop until it is utterly crushed and eradicated. There can be no truce or negotiation. It is futile to reason with terrorists who are incapable of it. Hamas does not want peace or normalization. They lust for death and destruction, cruelty and suffering. For them, human dignity and free choice, those are alien concepts. They subjugate and oppress many of the Palestinians in Gaza while they recruit or conscript more terrorists to massacre Jews in Israel. Although Hamas has long been the dominating force in Gaza, it seized formal power after I left the region. That was the ultimate death knell for the segment of Palestinians who are not sympathetic to the terrorists. Since then, Hamas has ruled that small strip of land with a despotic ruthlessness and viciousness over its own people. Structures deteriorated, essential services degraded, and tens of thousands of families live in squalor, unable to object out of fear. Non-militant Gazans know that the tyrants who control and manipulate their lives with an iron fist are dealers in death. Capitulate or else. Anyone who resists is punished. As a result, schools have evolved into training camps for future terrorists. Children are brainwashed that the highest pursuit for any Palestinian is murdering Jews. Is it any wonder that so many believe it? As Israel continues its bombing of Hamas operations and weapons arsenals concealed in Gaza and proceeds with the inexorable ground invasion to track down the terrorists, the Jewish state is entirely justified, both morally and legally. It is the sovereign right and duty of a nation to protect its citizens. Entrusting the United Nations to broker a resolution is a farce. The time for talks is over. Action, strength, and resolve are the only remaining course. The genocidal attack by Hamas underscores that this fanatical organization cannot be allowed to survive. It is an existential threat to Israel. It must act aggressively and without reticence to track down every last terrorist. Despite precautions and warnings to evacuate, civilian casualties are sadly unavoidable and unfortunate. But there is no moral equivalency. There can be no peace until Hamas is extinguished for good.
Joining me now to talk about it is David Schoen, a veteran trial attorney and civil rights lawyer who is the immediate past chairman of the Zionist Organization of America, founding member of its Center for Law and Justice. And David has represented American victims of terrorism against the PLO and other factions. And David, thanks so much for taking the time and joining The Brief. Let me just jump right in here. Sort of the thesis of my remarks is, would you agree that Israel has no choice in bombing Hamas strongholds in Gaza, preparing for a ground invasion, because this was a heinous attack on Israeli innocent civilians by Hamas terrorists, and the only answer, it seems to me, is to kill or capture the enemy wherever it hides, which means going into Gaza and crushing Hamas. You're 100% right. There's no question about it. Um, and Israel has to do it not just for Israel, but for the world. This is a global test for Israel, for the Biden administration, for other world powers. It reminds me a bit of a uh, Neville Chamberlain moment, you know, There was a time when Churchill said to Neville Chamberlain, you were given a choice between war and dishonor, and you chose dishonor. You will have war. That's uh, that's what we're facing, I think. Sorry, I don't mean to be too emotional about this. But uh, no, they have no choice in this case. This (laughs) Hamas has raised its evil head so many times. You know, what's not being reported today is all through Israel, rockets are being thrown. All day long, they're landing in central Israel, the Galilee. They're landing in Jerusalem still. They're landing in Tel Aviv. Hezbollah now is throwing them from the north. But Hamas and its associates from Gaza are sending rockets into civilian areas of Israel all day long. Nobody's talking about it anymore because, you know, it's not the massacre that happened last week. Yeah. You know, um, I wasn't surprised when I saw Bernie Sanders, a senator who's an avowed socialist, uh, he openly claimed that Israel's siege on Gaza is a serious violation of international law. But, you know, when the enemy hides among its civilian population and literally uses them as human shields, There is no law that I'm aware of that prohibits Israel from taking military action. What do you think? In fact, they have an obligation to. And Hamas has an obligation not to use human shields. There are reams and volumes of uh, writing on this subject because human shields have been used before. They're being used in Ukraine-Russia conflagration also. But um, what's an enemy to do? And the United Nations even has recognized this. but it's recognized in Geneva Convention, Hague Convention, Rome Treaty, that some horrible enemies, unscrupulous enemies, will use human shields. And so that what and the defensive body, that is now Israel, which has to go on the attack, what they have to do is to ensure to the best of their ability that they limit collateral damage to civilians. But you can't, the law of, law of war recognizes that a combatant cannot hide and therefore avoid war by using human shields. That's a war crime. Hamas is committing a war crime. It's clearly delineated under the Rome Treaty under every uh, major international protocol. Um, in fact, there's a for the, one of the first times ever in support of Israel, there's this public statement out by international law experts all across the board. I'm shocked by it 
because they're usually against Israel. And they document the war crimes being committed by Hamas, crimes against humanity by Hamas, and so on. Israel cannot tolerate it. Israel, unlike, frankly, what we did in you know, Hiroshima and what uh, England what was done in Dresden and so on, Israel gave warning to the public uh, population, to the government, to the such as it is, to the civilian population, to evacuate. They gave far more advanced warning than they needed to give that they will be striking. Now, you can imagine Hamas has been moving some of its assets out of the area that's going to be struck, but some of it are command headquarters, and they simply require civilians to stay there. We know now, even Secretary Blinken has acknowledged that Hamas is preventing the uh, exit of Gazan civilians. Yeah. You know, when I was there 22 years ago, it, I mean, it was known then that Islamic Jihad and Hamas both, who were operating in Gaza, were placing their, you know, weaponry and their bomb factories um, and their own headquarters uh, underneath or next to schools and hospitals and so forth on the assumption that Israel, out of fear of harming, you know, civilian population in in Gaza, you know, wouldn't bomb those places. So this is this is calculated. It's deliberate by Hamas to use them as shields. You know, one of the understandable concerns, David, is is the fate of the hostages, uh, including Americans taken by Hamas terrorists. There is no law of war or humanitarian law that would ever condone that, uh, as you point out. And to make matters worse, Hamas violates international law by refusing access, as I understand it, to the Red Cross, to those hostages. Um, what's to be done here? Shouldn't the Red Cross nevertheless double down and continue to make efforts? Oh, absolutely. The Red Cross has taken a good deal of criticism here. Listen, the Red Cross, unfortunately, has been in bed with Hamas in Gaza for quite a while. We know that their ambulances have been used uh, for years to help uh, foster uh, terrorist actions. And, um, you know, look, I'm sure they're intimidated by them, but let's call it what it is. Um, there's no question about that. The hostages thing is an impossible situation to try to figure out. Again, they can't just keep striking and massacring with impunity and then saying, well, we're holding hostages after all. Some third-party countries are trying to negotiate that. Israel's not in the mood to negotiate after the massacre, but they want to save human lives. As you know, you know, when Hamas was holding Gilad Shalit, Israel traded over a thousand Hamas terrorist prisoners to save one life. That's always been Israeli philosophy. On the other hand, their traditional philosophy has always been don't negotiate with terrorists. So there's uh, some kind of balance that has to be found there. I think there's a real question whether they can count on the hostages being held, kept alive anyway for Hamas, their bargaining chip. But, you know, you're talking about children, you're talking about grandmothers, you're talking about at least one grandmother with Alzheimer's. This is just barbaric stuff that we haven't ever confronted before in the civil in the civilized world for at least for centuries. What I find so despicable is the anti-Semitic, anti-Israel rhetoric that we have seen in these pro-Hamas, pro-Palestinian rallies in America. There was a huge one last Friday. It was supposed to be the day of rage that Hamas called for. Uh, and, you know, Times Square was packed. Uh, fortunately, I flew out of there uh, a couple of hours before it began. 
But you also see this on college campuses. Student organizations are blaming the victim, Israel, while trying to justify the Hamas massacre of innocent Israelis. At Harvard, there are more than 31 student organizations that signed this now notorious statement claiming that Israel is, quote, entirely responsible. And then, David, you have, you know, these unhinged student protesters, we've seen the video, embracing this violent radicalism by chanting, all of us are Hamas. And you see multitudes demanding this worldwide, and I'm quoting again, intifada revolution. They screamed, Israelis are the monsters, Israelis are the terrorists. I mean, this is so typical, isn't it, of the faux intellectual rot that has infected college campuses like a virulent plague. And sadly, you know, there's no cure for ignorance and stupidity. So what's your reaction to all of that? Yeah, very, very, very well put. Very important point. I think, you know, first of all, backing up a step, Hamas's uh, tactics uh, rely on the fact that they can count on Bernie Sanders and AOC and Tlaib and Omar to take up their cause um, as, in terms of, you know, blaming Israel and uh, saying this must stop after they engage in their attacks. But the college campuses are very, very, very troubling. Um, you know, there's a piece in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution uh, just recently over the weekend and they said there were protests at Georgia Tech University. Well, the, sh- the sign they show the student holding is, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Everybody acknowledges now that's a genocidal call. The UK foreign secretary just today put out a statement on Twitter saying, this is a genocidal call. Make no mistake about it. That's what these students are talking about. From the river to the sea means no more Israel. Obliterate Israel, kill all Jews, get them out of the land, their land. Um, but that's, you know, that's, that's become a tame one now. These student groups, many of them have ties uh, to Hamas and other funding sources. For example, Students for Justice in Palestine, this SJP, horribly named, um, which has really been organizing, put out a toolkit on it for colleges to use on their campuses uh, throughout the country and that have been used. It's founded in part by uh, uh, Sinan Sajek Shakete who is a former member of the PFLP. The PFLP is one of the most arch-terrorist factions of the PLO um, that there is. They've engaged in many killings of Americans, hijackings, that sort of thing. That's the influence here. And you have a ready student body um, that, and I'm afraid, starting to make us look a little bit like France or in parts of England, where this stuff you know, goes on regularly. But this is America. I want them to be able to say these things, by the way. I want to know that they exist and that they are saying these things. But I also want the universities to react much more forcefully and clearly and send out statements about uh, they're endorsing war crimes with their rhetoric. They're endorsing the killing, the torturing, torturing, the burning of innocent Israelis um, and the dehumanizing of them. And by the way, that's an interesting other chapter. This uh, analysis that c- c- uh, links not links, but compares Hamas to ISIS with the underlying philosophy and underlying uh, hero figures, and that is the dehumanization of Jews. They can torture and behead Jews because they don't think Jews are human beings. I'm glad you brought up this influential group on many of the college campuses, Students for Justice in Palestine. Um, 
which, as you point out, are peddling this inflammatory incendiary propaganda. And while I am a strong defender of the First Amendment and free speech, doesn't that kind of thing come perilously close to material support for a terrorist organization, especially given the ties that you've just identified? Absolutely. I mean, we're looking into that right now. Um, private right of action under or criminal action under 18 U.S.C. 2339B. Um, the material support uh, is broadly construed even after the Holder case, which may have narrowed it to some degree, the United States Supreme Court case. Um, it, it's clear that it doesn't have to be uh, direct action ordered by Hamas and so on. Um, I, I think they come dangerously close and maybe over the border. Beyond all that, even, we still have Title VI, which is intended to protect students on campus. Students are feeling intimidated. You don't have to look uh, far back in history. I represent a fellow now named Joseph Borgen, who, when there was an Israel Day parade not long ago, um, the last Hamas you know, conflict that was going on, we had people like AOC and Tlaib and Omar making these inflammatory statements in support of Hamas, apparently. And Joseph Borgen was walking down the street and was beaten by a group of Arab Americans. Last week, uh, the last one of them pled guilty to a hate crime. There was a group of five that have been caught so far. There are more. They're being sued civilly also. But that's what happens from this kind of rhetoric. And so on the college campuses, the colleges take federal funds especially, um, have an affirmative obligation to protect their students, to provide an environment in which students can learn, and so that some students don't feel intimidated walking in the campus. And of course, uh, Black Lives Matter, BLM, has jumped into the mix. As you pointed out to me before, uh, BLM is openly anti-Zionist, which means they're anti-Semitic. And they're twinning comments that, do they not, seem to glorify the slaughter of Jews. Yeah, the the Twitter stuff that they're putting out is horrible. It's really hard to understand. There'd been such a traditional link between, especially in the civil rights period, of course, and there's a common bond between Jews and African-Americans and uh, experiences and so on. It's horrible to see the way BLM has put a, a rift in that in that relationship and seems to get some pleasure out of fomenting and widening that rift. You know, you see who the people are who are supporting the rhetoric coming out of BLM. That's the white supremacists now um, all over the Internet now supporting that message. It's a uh, it's a horrible link, although, you know, we saw it way back when links between the Klan and some uh, black nationalist movements and so on with a mutuality of enemy. Um, so uh, it, it's horrible to see. It's great that we have this robust First Amendment uh, jurisprudence in this country. Again, I'd much rather see these people above surface than operating underground. Um, we know now, uh, to a point, I think, which many people have suggested, there's no turning back from that. We know now how virulently anti-Semitic these folks are in all of these organizations. They can never come back from that, whether it's CARE, CIIR, or SVP, Jewish Voices for Palestine, of all things. Um, you know, th- what's going on now, nobody's ever going to be able to forget. One of the ironies and contradictions, of course, is that, that students on college campuses are there to learn. And yet it appears that they learn nothing except the garbage that is spewed apparently in classrooms and on the campuses themselves by professors. 
And I'll give you some examples. A Yale professor publicly claimed that the murdered Israelis are not civilians, they're settlers. And that, he suggests, means that uh, their slaughter is okay. Over at Columbia University, a professor praised the Hamas genocidal attack as awesome. That was his words, awesome. At Harvard, a notoriously liberal professor, Lawrence Tribe, said that the Hamas attack on Israel was an attempt to hide corruption by Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu. And only when Tribe was roundly condemned and excoriated for that kind of sentiment did he apologize. But, you know, David, is it any wonder that students embrace such lunatic views when they're fed this kind of demented crap from the leftist professors who, of course, dominate college campuses. Perfectly predictable. Columbia knew what they were doing when they brought in Rashid Khalidi from Chicago. They developed a department now that's uh, got a few of these folks. Um, they're outrageous. They're simply, you know, sort of uh, card-carrying members of these hate groups, in a sense. Um, it's uh, students look up to their professors. They don't. Most of them don't know much about this subject at all beforehand. And so all they learn is what they're spoon-fed, or force-fed, I should say, by these anti-Semitic, hating professors. Again, the university wants to support academic freedom. University presidents must speak out much more forcefully than they are. Um, The exception, of course, as has been noted in the press, is Ben Sasse at the University of Florida, who has minced no words in coming out against this kind of stuff and in calling out the other universities Yeah. And, you know, it's not just on college campuses, but I mean, as you point out, you're hearing the same sort of nonsense from members of Congress, the ultra progressive squad, Alain Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Cori Bush. They all blamed Israel right after the horrific attack. They demanded an end to U.S. military aid to our closest ally. And, and of course, the ever moronic AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, called for an immediate ceasefire uh, after the Israelis were massacred. It, it's not just in the halls of Congress. You also hear similar anti-Israel sentiment on, for example, MSNBC, where the hosts appear to have been blaming Israel and the United States, and they characterize Palestinians as the real victim. Of course, the network has been slammed for refusing to refer to Hamas attackers as terrorists. But, you know, it's no wonder that their ratings plunged 33% in primetime, 24% overall since the Hamas attack. But is this the kind of, of trash that people hear from a cable network and influential members of Congress, and it runs the risk of shaping public opinion and the course of uh, the Biden administration's uh, decisions, whether to help and continue to help Israel. Absolutely. I worry very much because, you know, the Biden administration was for a long time pandering to this hate squad. Um, It seems right now, you know, they're taking a principled position on this, but I've said all along. Not going to last. That's right. How how long can that possibly last? Um, you know, Blinken already has had to retract some things he said. He's now meeting. Well, you know, look, when you start seeing the pictures of the bombings in Gaza and all of that business, that's when everybody, you know, starts, oh, how can this be? 
So is our memory so short that you forget the pictures still circulating of beheaded babies and people burned alive just to a week ago? It's absolutely outrageous. No country in the world would put up with that. Every country would strike back more. I don't believe any other country would give the kind of advance warning that Israel has been giving. But these guys are a disgrace. MSNBC is an absolute disgrace in so many categories. I made the mistake of doing a show with them uh, a couple of months ago. I got more death threats after that show than any show I've ever done any place, many fold. And when I reported it to them, they said they were very sorry. And then they ran the piece the next night more fully edited to make me look worse in it. And I got many more death threats. So they're completely irresponsible. They have so-called experts on there, don't know what they're talking about. But these members of Congress, you know, Brian Mast, the veteran, had an interesting, just very quick uh, line to Tlaib the other day when he said, uh, you know, he wasn't going to dignify all of the absurd things that she says, misinformed and uh, misstatements. And he said to her, you know, Tlaib has her Palestinian flag. I have my uniform. (laughs) Um, There is a movement afoot uh, by business CEOs, corporate America, as well as law firms to um, withdraw job offers uh, from students um, who have engaged in this kind of anti-Semitic hate and endorsement of uh, the Hamas terrorist attack. Um, From a legal standpoint, they're entitled to do that, aren't they? Absolutely. You know, I've said Winston and Strawn was the first to really kind of step up. This president of the student bar at NYU uh, wrote this piece about why Hamas's massacre was necessary and so on. And so they rescinded an offer they had made to her with their law firm, because what they said is her point of view is anathema to us. It's not consistent with the values this law firm holds dear and that our clients count on. They're entitled to take that position. I imagine she'll sue. They should win the lawsuit. Bill Ackman came out and said, let's give it, give us the names of who these students are. Don't hide behind masks and don't hide behind anonymity and so on. And so what you see on the flip side now is many of the students who signed on scrambling to say, oh, I was never consulted. I didn't realize what I was signing. I'm sure in some cases it's true. In some cases, it appears that the president of an organization was consulted. The president of that organization gave his or her uh, imprimatur to the statement. And then the members or even other officers are saying, you never consulted with us. So I don't know how much of that's real and how much are just scrambling because they're afraid of losing a job now. But to be even be associated with the organizations who have signed on those letters in the first place, they were very, very misguided. I think their hearts for many of them were in the right place. They felt for an underdog. They were sold a bill of goods and so on. But after what happened in Israel, the massacre that happened, you must disassociate yourself with any organization that would condone it because by condoning it, And coming out in favor of Hamas or against Israel, you're condoning the beheading of babies, uh, genocide, you're uh, condoning war crimes, uh, torture, and kidnapping, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, You know, in America, you have a right to free speech. Um, But when you express yourself freely on political matters, uh, especially contentious ones, there can be consequences. And those consequences can be felt in the job market, especially involving uh, private enterprise. Um, my last question is, where do you see this this going? In, in my remarks, I said there can be no peace until Hamas is extinguished for good. So that's, how does that happen? Yeah, That's 100 percent right. I don't know if that can happen, how it happens. 
you know, they simply bury themselves in civilian, among the civilian population. They don't walk around wearing uniforms generally. Uh, so it's very, Israel knows a lot of, you know, who's who within Hamas. And frankly, they've gotten some information from people, terrorists who they've captured. But I don't know that you can ever get rid of them. And if you do, the next one's going to pop up. Hezbollah's no better. Um, and you've got many factions. You know, we always focus on Hamas now in the last couple of weeks. But, you know, you've got Islamic Jihad. You've got all kinds of factions operating in sure. Gaza. And some people would say this was the huge mistake in 2005. In turning over Gaza, you created a terrorist state. But, you know, Israel's lambasted for that also. They unilaterally withdrew. There is no occupation in Gaza, which, all you know, of course, triggers all of these other legal arguments we don't have time for today. But people complaining about not providing electricity and not providing construction supplies and all of that, they have no obligation. They agreed to it contractually under Oslo when Israelis live there. All Everything's changed since those agreements. They have no obligation. They're not an occupying uh, party and so on. I, I don't know where it ends, though. They've, th- but I do know that it, it has to be right now through the use of force, unfortunately. Iran is threatening to get involved. And, uh, you know, that would be a major catastrophe. I'm hoping that the U.S. stands strong. David Sean, thanks so much for being with us. Veteran trial lawyer, civil rights attorney, media past chairman of the Zionist Organization of America and the founding member of its Center for Law and Justice. Again, David, always appreciate talking to you. Thanks for being on The Brief. Thank you. Great honor. And that's The Brief. I'm Greg Jarrett. Thanks for listening.